Our focus this morning will be Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And I'm going to read beginning at verse 9 through 14. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let us pray. Our Father, we do ask that you would would help us, that you would truly speak by your Holy Spirit to those of us, your children, that you would help us to understand these things, to apply these things to our own lives, but Father, to understand what is the gospel, what is the truth of the gospel, and how we may live it, how we may act in accordance with it, and not according to hypocrisy. We ask that you would do these things not for our glory, but for yours, for the building up of your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In 1940, a man named Ralph Edwards for NBC created a game show called Truth or Consequences. It was on radio at first, and then later on television until 1988, 48 years a game show. Uh, one of the hosts that you will probably recognize the name of, Bob Barker, was on that show. And I can remember watching that show as a child. I don't remember too much about it. But the premise was that the contestants were to answer a question that was given by the moderator, and they were supposed to tell the truth, answer the question truthfully. And if they did not, then they, there was consequences to pay. They were to do some kind of a stunt or some kind of a gag. And apparently what happened was most didn't answer truthfully, partly because they only gave you three seconds to answer a three-part question, so most of them couldn't think that fast. But most of them realized that the whole entertainment value was seeing them do some kind of silly stunt, and so they played along and did not answer according to the truth, but looked to the consequences. Well, in our passage this morning, we have truth or consequences. But unfortunately, here it's no game. In fact, it's a fight. A very public and perhaps messy confrontation with very high stakes for the early church. Remember where we've been and where we are. 
We're in Paul's travelogue, his recitation to us of his travels and his ministry as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're coming to the end of that narrative section. So this is, the, this is a transitional period in his letter to the Galatians. But he has been to Jerusalem in the part that we just read, where he has been given the right hand of fellowship by the pillars of the church, those apostles who had met and knew the Lord Jesus Christ intimately, Peter and James and John. But now he speaks of Antioch. And it is said of Antioch that it was, quote, a laboratory for Jewish-Gentile relations in the early church. This was where Barnabas had, had brought Paul from Tarsus to be his companion in ministry. This was where the church was being opened up to the Gentiles. It was a place where there was much growth in the church, where the Gentiles were being brought to faith. And there are those who say at this time, Antioch probably had about half a million residents, of which roughly 10% were Jews. Now, how many of those were Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, we do not know. But we know that here was kind of this picture in the early church of what we saw in Sunday school this morning in terms of the creeds and the confessions, trying to understand what the Trinity is. Well, here is, is the, the laboratory. Here's where the growth is taking place, where men, godly men, are trying to understand how Jews and Gentiles are to relate to one another. What is the gospel and what is expected of those who are gospel-believing? And I want to use the word, but I'm premature here because I needed to say that Acts tells us that here we have neither Jews nor Gentiles, but we have this new thing, this new group of people. And it was in Antioch for the very first time in history that these people, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, were called Christians. And yet, there's conflict. Trying to figure out what is this Christian life all about? And it's surrounding what we see here is the table, the table fellowship around the meal, very central to Jewish thinking, very, and some would say, sacred to the Jew. Table fellowship was partaking of the blessings of God. We looked at that word last week, koinonia. The partaking or participating in the meal to them was participating in the blessings of God. And it was how they showed by their dietary laws that they belonged to God. And so this is a very dear concept here that we're, we're looking at. And yet a fight erupts. Now there are those who say that perhaps this was an agape meal that brought this about where the Christians celebrated the love feast as well as eating together as we do the first Sunday of each month after our service here, celebrating the Lord's table. We go downstairs and celebrate together and eat a meal together. And so you, you kind of get the picture of this is, this is what 11 through 14, this kind of the scene that we see. But let's not forget what 
is the, the basic outline of Paul's letter to this point, is that he is giving his defense of his apostleship. Now, I don't believe that that is the only point. In fact, I don't believe it's the major point of this particular lesson. But what we see here is that Paul has, has added his third and final proof of his apostleship before the apostles and elders from Jerusalem. In chapter 1, 13 through 24, we see that Paul says, I've been an apostle of long standing. I was given my gospel by Christ, personally by him, and long before I even met the apostles in Jerusalem. And in chapter 2, 1 through 10, the other apostles saw, and we, we looked at these phrases from verse 7 and verse 9, they saw that he had been entrusted with the gospel, and they recognized, they knew that the grace had been given to him by God to minister. And now in this section, 11 through 14, we see that he had authority as an apostle, not just an authority to preach, and to minister, but actually an authority to correct an erring apostle, to correct one who is even a pillar of the church, even one of stature of Peter, who was in error in his conduct. But now we also have the issue that some say it can't be that Peter. No, no, not that Peter. Not the Peter who denied the Lord and then the Lord has breakfast with him and says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, and he goes on to write the first and second epistles. It can't be that Peter. It must be a different Peter. We have the question of whether, and, and we saw this in our Thursday night class with, with Chuck as we've been going through Genesis. We had the question, and I, I don't know about you, but, you know, hey, Toto, we're not in hermeneutics 101 anymore in Genesis. We're in hermeneutics 301. We were asked the question, was Genesis 20 chronologically displaced from the chronology of Abraham? And we found in that instance that it was chronologically displaced by Moses because it was thematically positioned to have the theme that he wanted to cover from chapter 19 to chapter 20. In chapter 19, if I could, Abraham was dictating to God justice about righteousness that wasn't even there in Sodom. And then in chapter 20, we see where he was trying to pass his wife, Sarah, off as his sister because of fear that there was no fear of God in that place, his thought was, again, misplaced. That there was no fear in which there was great fear of God in that place with Abimelech. And so there are some who come to this passage, Peter, and say, it, it can't be Peter at this time. It can't be the Peter who extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul in Jerusalem not that long before, could it? It's got to be misplaced or displaced to meet the theme, to put his three proofs together of his apostleship. And that is possible. But I believe if you look at the language in 11 through 14, 
Verse 11, he was condemned. In verse 12, he withdrew for fear. And then his hypocrisy in 13, I think you begin to get a different picture that this is not displaced chronologically. It happened after the right hand of fellowship meeting in Jerusalem and that this is not an issue of what is the gospel, but it is an issue of living out that gospel. And Paul's moving us on into looking at that it's not just agreeing with a statement, but it's living out that truth. Truth, are you going to live by the truth that you say you embrace? Are you looking at the consequences and fearing what will happen? Because things are changing. Things, their world has been turned upside down by the gospel. We also notice the importance of the phrase from section 1 through 10. Paul says, my ministry is that of great importance that you would remain in the truth of the gospel. And what is happening here, Paul is accusing Peter of not walking straightforwardly in the truth of the gospel. So there is that connection thematically, of course, here. And we also notice the undertone here, the background, the thing that's kind of lying here that we haven't really talked about, and that is this word that we still here in our day, still battle in our day, and I think it's how we see that it would apply to us in our own lives. There is an undertone of racism here. The context, yes, eating kosher or not to eat kosher. But what is the reality? The reality is Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians and how they relate. Should Jewish Christians keep themselves from fellowship with Gentile Christians? That's how they were brought up. They are immoral and unclean, and you do not especially eat with them. You do not have fellowship with them. But were the Jewish brethren in Jerusalem afraid of being morally contaminated by the Gentiles? The question goes both ways. It's not simply how should the Gentile Christians live, but it is how the Jewish Christians should relate to the Gentile Christians as well. The overarching question is what is required of the Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus Christ. But the Jerusalem consult, the 1 through 10 passage in chapter 2, I think is on what basis should Gentiles be allowed to join the church? What is the gospel? But now we get that Paul is extending us in our theological thinking because the Antioch issue is how do Jewish converts relate to Gentile converts? Should Gentile Christians be forced to take on the Jewish law in order to attain full status within the Messianic community? And so the focus is a little bit different. It's still the gospel. And what is the gospel? And what is the truth of the gospel? But there is that living out of that. Are you going to walk in the truth? Or are you going to look at the consequences? 
And are you going to favor the consequences or what you think the consequences are rather than walk in the truth? And so what we see plainly, and I don't know how to say it any different, Peter messed up big time. Peter got it wrong. The, verse, the passage tells us, starting in verse 12, for prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. The, the language is, it was his habit. He had been eating with them. He had been fellowshipping with them. He had been breaking bread. It, it was something that he did as a habit and did it publicly and perhaps celebrated the agape feast with them. But what happened? Well, some men came from James, and so Peter withdraws, and the word is aloof. He, he, he separated himself. It, it's like he began to kind of pull back. He began to kind of, you know, not participate in those, that fellowship as often to the point where he was separating himself from the Gentiles. <clears throat> Now, who these men are from James is not clear. And there's a couple of different things that they could be. Some believe that they were, in a sense, not spies, but scouts from James. That they were men who were, were acquainted with James, who were sent out either by him or uh, either using his name to see how is this working Here's the laboratory. Let's go to the lab and see how it's working. Paul and Barnabas have this thriving ministry among the Gentile Christians. What are they? How does it actually work in practice? Or it could be that they're just name droppers. They're saying they're from James because they're using, as we talked about last week, the pillars. They're the pillars. They're the big guys. If I drop their name, then people will respect me and let me into the lab to see what's going on. But what was the result? Paul says he stood condemned. And that's a strong word. It, and he's not condemning himself. And he's not being condemned by other people. The language is that he stands guilty before Almighty God. He is under condemnation of God for his actions here. But it's his motive. He's looking at the consequence. And he's saying, I'd rather go through that than have people know the truth. What is the motive? End of verse 12. Fearing the party of the circumcision. Now again, it, it is not clear who these people are and what he means. In the scriptures, most often, except for maybe one passage that I could find, what it simply means is people who have been circumcised. It is those people, the Jews, who were circumcised and living under Jewish law. It is possible that it is the circumcision party of the antagonizers, those who were insisting, if you read chapter 15 of Acts, that says they insist on circumcision for salvation. But here, I, I don't see that as being the focus. What I see is that there were Jews who had not lived as Peter had lived in the freedom of eating and having fellowship with Gentiles, and he was afraid of what they would think about his actions. 
And so Paul says it was hypocrisy. And there are some, even among the commentators, who say, oh, wait, 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 wait. first century hypocrisy, that word wasn't used like we use it today. It, it's taken on a spiritual connotation. But I think in the context, I, I would disagree. The word we see here, he says in verse 13, and the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. He uses it twice. And, and the word, um, as you might know, comes from the theater. It means simply to play a part. And so when they would have theater in those days, they would put on a mask and they would act a part. They would play someone who they were not. And yes, the connotation has come to, in that spiritual realm to be that you are contradicting you are acting differently than your convictions. You contradict what you own as a conviction. And that's what was happening. That Peter had a conviction that he could eat with the Gentiles, but now he was playing the part of one who was strictly Jewish. And probably very, very sad for Paul, not only Peter, but his partner in ministry, Barnabas, was carried away by their hypocrisy. He's a little lenient on Barnabas, not on Peter. Because the language that he uses with Barnabas was, Barnabas didn't go away, Barnabas was <clears throat> carried away. As if he's swept away in the current of all of those who are now, because of Peter's action, are moving away from that position that they held by conviction that we are Christians before God. Gentiles and Jewish backgrounds, yes, but we could fellowship together. But now the tide is moving out. And Barnabas was swept away in that tide. And what is the bottom line? Verse 14, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I had to act. I had to say something to Peter in public. The word comes for straightforward or acting in step with comes from the word we would recognize as orthopedics. To have your feet straight. And so we could say this phrase, I, I saw that they were not in step with the truth of the gospel. They were not walking that straight line, that correct line in truth or about the truth of the gospel. Peter knew the solution. Peter knew the straightforward path in his eating relationships. In Acts chapter 10, we have that vision that, that Peter had the, relating the vision of the sheet filled with all of the animals that were unclean to the Jews. And the sheet comes down and the voice of God tells him plainly, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And we see a progression 
in Peter's understanding of the sheet and the animals and the statement as he goes along through Acts chapter 10. Listen as I quote some of the verses from chapter 10. This is Peter speaking, and he's realizing that the foods are clean. He says, what God, this is God speaking to Peter, but Peter relating it, what God has made clean, do not call common. And Peter begins to realize that it's not just the food, it's the people, it's the believers in Christ, not common. Do not call them common. God calls them clean. And later on, he says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality as he was led to have fellowship and eat with a Gentile named Cornelius. And later, he comes to this realization, if God gave to them, the Gentile Christians, he means, the same gift that he gave to us, who am I to stand in God's way? If this is what God is doing, who am I to get in the way of that? And now in chapter 2, we see that it was his habit. He used to eat with Gentiles. It was his practice to do this for some time. He knew what God had taught him. He had progressed through those steps. He had begun to think theologically, but now he looked at the consequences and he said, I'm not going to say the truth. And he starts to withdraw, and he remains aloof and separates himself for fear of man. Peter was inconsistent with his own theology. He contradicted what he owned as his belief. He was a hypocrite. And in effect, Peter is saying, I am ashamed of the gospel. In effect, he is absolutely denying the gospel. And so Paul has to act. We get the idea from verse 14. He says, but when I saw. Perhaps Paul and Barnabas were on their first missionary journey, which is when I believe that this might have taken place. But in any account, it's when he recognizes, when he, he, he stands back and he takes this assessment of the situation, he says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And then in verse 14, he says, and I did this in the presence of all. Why? Why does he do this? Why does he have to do it this way? Well, I believe it is as if Peter has said to the people, to the Gentile Christians that he used to eat freely with, you must do more than believe in Jesus Christ if you are going to have fellowship with me. Peter was in conflict with the truth of the gospel that it is by faith alone in Christ alone by deciding that no I have to put some other fences around it I have to put some other boundaries around it if you're going to fellowship with me and not only was he acting the hypocrite but he was putting the Gentile Christians in danger and he was confusing the Jewish Christians at the same time do you see 
You see, our sin doesn't just affect us. It affects everybody around us. If the Gentile believers yielded to Peter's action, they would say, oh, Peter, that pillar of the truth, the one that we've gotten to know, this man who knew Jesus personally, he's now saying that we must follow all of the Jewish law in order to be right before God. Then what would they be doing but placing themselves on a performance basis before God, trying to make themselves good enough to be accepted by God. And therefore, a public sin of this case, I think, had to be rebuked publicly. He didn't punish Peter, he rebuked him. But it was required not only that Peter got the message, but that the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians all got the warning and the message. And his warning is in the form of a question. Verse 14. If you, he says to Peter, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paraphrasing. You live Gentile-like and not Jew-like. You haven't been following the food laws. You have been eating with people who not only eat the wrong foods, but cook them the wrong way too. And you've been living that way and not Jew-like. How can you morally, in good conscience, compel Gentiles to Judaize. And that's literally what the word is, to Judaize. How can you do that? John Stott writes, If God has accepted them, how can we reject them? If he receives them to his fellowship, shall we deny them to ours? Every time a Christian goes beyond the scripture and defines behavior by some man-made rule, he is denying the gospel. He is denying the sufficiency of the scripture to be the one rule of faith and practice. And so Paul was justified in rebuking Peter in the hearing and in the sight of them all. But what happens to us? Do we mess up? You don't have to answer. You know the answer to that question. I tried to ask, ask the question, what if it happened to me? Or probably more accurately, since it has happened to me. How did I mess up? Why did I mess up? How do I keep from messing up again? And I was greatly helped in thinking through this section by, and I don't know the man, um, his name is Josh Moody. He wrote a book called No Other Gospel. It's not so much a commentary verse by verse as a series of questions. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I, I read a commentary or just sometimes reading the Bible in, in its original, and, and, and there, there can be a kind of, uh, 
reluctance, a kind of uh, saying, you know, it's kind of sterile. And it's not that the Bible is wrong, it's just like it's not penetrating the old gray matter. And sometimes when I read Josh Moody, he asks it in a modern vernacular that, that just, it's, this is the question that we ought to think. Sometimes I have to close the book and put it back on the shelf because he hits too close to home. But I use that as a guide. I believe the examples here are mine, but I use that as a guide to ask some of these questions or at least look at some of these realities. How do we mess up? How do we find ourselves following in the footsteps of Peter and his big mess up? One is that we don't acknowledge that our ideas and our actions and our words have consequences. I can remember as, as parents, we would always tell this to our children, choices have consequences. And you need to think about something before you do it. Look before you leap, perhaps. But an example, we know, we know when I peek at the checkbook or my bank balance, I can't possibly buy that new tool but I stick the plastic in the hole anyway and say, yeah, I'll sign my name. We don't understand, we don't look at the consequences, we just do because we want, we gotta have. Sometimes we do it with purchases, but we even do it with promises to our children, to our neighbors, to our brothers and sisters. Oh yeah, I'll help you with that. Knowing full well we don't have the resources or we know that we're really not gonna put in the time but our choices on what we do and say have consequences. Number two, we don't live like what we do as Christians must come out of what we believe. We can perhaps recite Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, right? Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven because the treasures on earth will rot and rust. And yet, we see that car, we drive by the lot, and ah, gotta have it. I put my treasures in things that will not last, as if they will last forever. But I know the truth. Or we say, we say that we believe that God has reserved sex for marriage. We believe that marriage is for life and that when I made that vow before my wife, forsaking all others and only devoted to you, I know that truth. I can recite that truth. I can remember the day when I spoke that truth, but do I? Do I look at pornography on the internet? Do I flirt with the idea of having an illicit affair? Do I even think about life without my partner? I know the truth, I can recite the truth, but do I walk in the truth on a daily basis? Or am I putting on that mask? and paying the consequences and not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. 
Number three, we never think that what we do may change what others believe. And if you don't think that's true, see verse 13. His name was Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Even he, even he was carried away by the hypocrisy of Peter. But closer to home, think about your children. Think about those, if you're a teacher, if you're a leader, if you're a supervisor at work. Others are more likely to follow what you do than rather than what you say you believe. And your actions are going to cause others to change perhaps what they believe. Again, go to verse 13. The rest of the Jews and Barnabas were carried away by that current, changing what they believed to be the truth of the gospel. Four, we never realize that what we do in practice can actually become a change in what you believe. If you do something long enough, the wrong thing, you begin to believe it yourself. Or you begin at least that road of justifying it to yourself. It's okay to do this because, and usually we pin it on somebody else. Well, their attitude drove me to it and I just couldn't help myself. And we began to change what we believe because it's become a habit and now a justified belief. But why do we mess up? Well, sometimes we're focused on the consequences and we just forget the truth of what we know. We, we, we focus on what we fear will happen, the fear of man. It's not just at work. You know, I'm afraid of what my colleagues are going to think if I present this proposal in a meeting. I went through that for 18 years. I was never good enough. My idea was never the one chosen. And so after a while, you just, oh, I'm going to withdraw. I'm not going to participate. But sadly, it happens in the church. The, the, the family and then the church second, I think, should be the safest places for people to be who they are, to be able to express themselves, to be able to live in, in peace. And yet, sadly, they're two of the most Horrendous places for many people to live because we fear what will happen. How will our, my words be interpreted? How will my actions be perceived? How will my thoughts be judged? Fear of man. We play a game. One commentator calls it, we play the game of concealment and compromise. We conceal who we really are, we conceal what we really believe, and we compromise even though we know it's not the truth. Peter played the withdrawn aloof. He withdrew and he separated. And sadly, many Christians, even those who sit in the pews, in the seats, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, they're physically there, but they're mentally, theologically, spiritually withdrawn and aloof. And it's because of us. 
It might be because of me, because of my hypocrisy, because I wear the mask. And sometimes we make decisions simply based on greed, on what we perceive as need, or some desire. Fear of not having, I, you know, I know I need that, I'm going to get it. I don't care who I have to step on or what I have to do to lie or not follow the truth in order to get it. But I think more often with Christians, it's because we don't and haven't learned how to think theologically. We don't understand what the fundamental issue is, and then we can't, because we don't see that, we can't kind of move through the surface to see the root cause of it. Never mind understanding what were the presuppositions. And then hopelessly have no chance to find a conclusion to understand, how do I walk in this truth? And sadly, it results in our actions not keeping in step with the truth of the gospel. So how do we not mess up? Well, hopefully, first and foremost, if you mold that question, and I'll give you more than three seconds, repent of known sins. Repent and turn again that times of refreshing, the scriptures say, may come from the presence of the Lord. Confess the part that we have played. Confess that we have played the part of the hypocrite, or at least the part of the agnostic, the one who just doesn't know. Or we played the part of one who doesn't want to take the time to think theologically. It's not, repentance doesn't mean feeling sorry for yourself. Many of us do that. I feel sorry for myself because I wish I hadn't been caught in that sin. That's not what repentance is. And it's not just the words saying, I'm sorry. But it is believing and acting differently than you were before. It is a turning again. It is a moving toward the truth. And sometimes... And maybe more than we would admit, we need to find somebody. Find somebody to help us, hold us accountable to the truth. Someone who will give us that little sounding board, that little prick of the conscience. Yes, you have the Holy Spirit, but sometimes we need the, the flesh on. To, someone to say, why are you doing that? Or have you thought that through? Someone you trust, someone who knows you and knows what you're like and knows, can see the body language, can see it in your eyes, can detect withdrawal. Not all of us can see the mental, spiritual withdrawal. Study the scriptures. Study the scriptures on your knees. Pray. Again, I've said it before and I'll probably say it again many times before they put me in the pine box and carry me out. But the words in John, when Jesus says of the, to the Pharisees and scribes, my words make no progress in you, I would hate God to say that on that great day. Jesus' words just didn't make any progress in your life. Pray that they will. Pray that his words, the scripture, the, would work, that they would make progress. Fear God, 
not man. Or if I could paraphrase, and excuse me for it, that's what came to my head. Paraphrasing the psalmist, Oh, taste and see how big God is. He's bigger than all your fears. He's bigger than your enemy. He's bigger than those who would persecute you or laugh at you for being a Christian or accuse your ideas of not being very good, of laughing at what you might think or say in relation to your walk with Christ. And pray. Ephesians 1, 17, Paul prays for the people. And I think by extension, it's given to us to pray for one another. May God give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. When, when God says through Isaiah, my ways are not your ways. My ways are past finding out. Yes, it's the transcendence of Almighty God, but at the same time, it's comfort of the imminence of that Almighty God is our guide and helper. He is bigger than our fears. He is bigger, what's the phrase? He is bigger than the sum of all our fears. Take off the mask. Take off the mask of the hypocrite and put on the righteousness of Christ. Why do we think we have to wear the mask anyway? Because when people see us unmasked, we're afraid they won't like us. But when we put on the mask, it is because we have forgotten that my unmasked self was bought for, bought and paid for by the precious blood of Christ, that I'm justified before him, not before the people, before Christ and Christ alone. Don't wear the mask. Put on the righteousness of Christ. And for every action and every personal interaction, Ask yourself this question, am I in this action and in this interaction keeping in step with the truth of the gospel? Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, teach us, help us, guide us, preserve us in the truth. Father, may your people grow up theologically. May we grow up spiritually. May we grow up mentally. May we grow up in our ability to fellowship truly and glorifying you. We ask that you would do this. Only you can do this. For apart from you, we can do nothing. Do it, Lord, do it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please rise for the benediction. And these are the words of a man who was once a hypocrite. Peter writes in the first chapter of his first epistle, Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ.